I can remember standing at a little train station in a very remote part of Italy some 20 or so years ago, traveling all by myself. At that point, I was trying to get back to Florence, Italy in a rather short time frame to catch a flight back to Scotland where I'd had the privilege to, to study abroad for, for a few months. And I was starting to get worried. I was, I was pretty low on money. I did not know Italian. This was kind of just a short visit. And I was in an area that, was, again, was so small and remote. Um, all the signs were in Italian. It wasn't like some of the bigger cities where you get some of the English signs, which meant I couldn't decipher which train I needed to catch. And this was a good seven or eight years before smartphones, right? So I keep asking people. I go to this first guy, and I was Florence, ah, Firenze. You know, I spoke no Italian. I can barely, I can't even say the word right. And um, he didn't know what I was saying exactly, but he, he starts responding in Italian. He's pointing both ways down the track the whole time. <laughs> I didn't want to make him feel bad, so I go further on down and ask a, another person, Florence, Firenze, um, and then another and another. And, and honestly, uh, the pressure of the tight timeline and the lack of clear, clear, clear answers. I just guessed, and I went the right direction. I got to Florence, and I recognized, honestly, in the grand scheme of things, even if I'd chosen the wrong direction, it would probably have worked out, a few more headaches, but it, it was going to work out someday, some way, right? But for just a few minutes, I felt this mild terror come over my entire body, maybe for the first time in my life at that point, when I realized I am totally totally dependent on the goodwill of strangers who do not speak my language. Have you ever known anything like that sensation? Have you been in a place, maybe, maybe you didn't have the language or, 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 or money or, or, or you didn't have a, a way you could just make a quick call or pull out a connection to save you or, or somehow show your resume that says, yes, I'm a person who can be trusted and I did things that are worthy of have you ever had this profound sense of, of almost dislocation and then accompanied by this, this very real awareness, I am completely dependent on the goodwill of people who do not know me and I do not know them? And if so, then we have perhaps glimpsed maybe just the slightest taste of the refugee experience that stands before Elimelech and Naomi and their sons Malhan and Kilion at the outset of this story from the book of Ruth. Their family must leave Bethlehem, you heard, a town that, by the way, means house of bread, because ironically, there's no more bread. There's a great famine, and in order to survive, they must go next door to Moab. The Moabs are something of distant relatives of the Israelites, but at this time and throughout much of the scriptures, the Moabites are understood as the enemy next door. There was this time years ago, the Moabites, they'd seduced a bunch of Israelite men to um, begin following the pagan Moabite gods. And not long after that, this plague then hits all the Israelite people and 24,000 of them die. And so the Israelites, they write into law, Moabites may never come into the assembly of the Lord. Not those people. And now the Israelite family must go into the assembly of the Moabites to survive. 
And Moab, it seems, works out for them on the food front. They survive, but, but then the story is just one thing after another, as you heard. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he dies. His name, his name literally means God is king. And so now there's not only a physical dislocation, new, new place they live, but a spiritual one is strongly implied. This sense that God's in charge, God has a plan, it's a good plan, I can trust this plan. That's no longer so firm. Bethlehem has no bread and God is king is dead. And actually, we have the distinct sense the story's just going to keep getting worse. Malhan, one of the two children, his name literally means sickly and weakly. Jillian, his name literally means annihilation. Well, these two sons, they do marry Moabite women. You heard Ruth and Orpah. And their names do, in fact, catch up with them. They die a few years later. At this point, then, Naomi has no heirs, no descendants. She's too old to marry, have children. As one commentator explains about the ancient world, there was no greater tragedy than for a human family to cease to exist. Right? I mean, God's fundamental promise to Abraham and Sarah was to bless the offspring, right? Children are a vital, ongoing sign of God's blessing into the future and for future generations. They carry the faith. They carry the name. A year or so before my grandmother died, a few years ago, she gave me this particular tie for Christmas. It used to belong to my grandfather who died about 25 or so years ago at this point. And she presented it so very reverently. I have a very important gift for you. This gift was not just any tie. It was not just my grandfather's tie, as important as that was. It was also the Keith Tartan. Our family on my mom's side originates from Scotland, particularly among the Keith clan and this particular Tartan she wanted to be sure the family name and all that is beneath that, all the generations, all the stories, all the pieces will be carried forward. Do you have a tie like this? An object? A piece of furniture? A letter? Even if we have never faced the deep ache of famine that is before Naomi, we do know that deep ache to have our lives live on. For the family name to live on. For our faith to live on. For, for our church to live on. Naomi's story is one of continual dislocation. From her home. From the center of her faith. And then who is she and what is she even doing when there is nobody else to carry the name? And actually, she has a thought herself on that point. Later in Ruth chapter 1, Naomi declares, She shall no longer be called Naomi, which means pleasant. But because all this has happened, call me Mara, she says, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. None of us have known the precise contours of Naomi's story. But we all do know something about being dislocated, or even knowing layers of dislocation. 
Scott Cromode is a professor, of, a professor of leadership at Fuller Theological Seminary. He was speaking at a recent continuing education event that I was attending, and he invited us to, to, to think for a moment about standing in the ocean just a little offshore as a wave is coming. Maybe you're standing waist deep and the wave comes and maybe you hop over it. Maybe it's a big wave. You kind of dive under it and through it. Maybe you ride it one way or another. You deal with the wave, you navigate it, and then you stand there and you wait for another wave. The problem, he said, is that today it is one major wave after another. One comes and right away another is right there behind it. And soon enough, we're, we're swirling around in, in waves, utterly exhausted and very much disoriented. He went on to say that the five biggest crises, as far as he could tell, five biggest waves, as someone who is thinking about leadership and navigating these times, the five biggest waves facing us today are medical, economic, political, racial, and educational. And in all varieties, big and in small ways they hit our lives, but they just keep coming, dislocation, disorientation, where do you find an anchor amidst that, a, a sense of direction, nourishment? Eventually, Naomi hears there's, there's bread back in Bethlehem again, house of bread. And so she and her two daughters-in-law begin walking, you heard, and, and then what unfolds is one of the most more famous moments in all of Scripture. Ruth, this Moabite, of the historical enemy, a person of the historical enemy, a person of the other side, Ruth declares to Naomi, the Israelite, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. Amid Naomi's profound dislocation, she's promised not bread, She's not promised a new home, not promised a rekindled faith, not promised some kind of uh, future blessing that comes back onto the scene. Instead, she is promised a companion. Ruth's words are a stunning declaration. They're as a pure demonstration of hesed as you will find in all of Scripture. Hesed, the Hebrew word for faithfulness, loving kindness. Covenant love. I am with you no matter the waves. Ruth's declaration does not change the waves themselves, but I think we also know that the gift of Hesed can nevertheless move mountains, right? A pastor friend of mine, he told me about a story um, about a wedding. He told me the story of a wedding that he did a number of years ago. Very nice wedding, took, out, took place outside in the beautiful farmland. A, a few of the family wanted a, a pastor to officiate it, but honestly, most of the folks there weren't terribly religious or connected to a church or any of that. The bride's grandparents, they're sitting on the front row. The grandmother at that time is, is, is nearly fully deaf, and um, her eyesight's not great either. So as the service begins to unfold, the bride's grandfather is leaning into his wife's ear and telling her, narrating to her, what's happening in the service. It's a bit awkward. People are noticing because he needs to be rather loud so that she can hear. She just finished walking down the aisle. 
The pastor's talking about marriage. Yes. They all look splendid. My friend shares, you have to imagine there could have been a few folks a little annoyed. If nothing else, there was definitely a sense of distraction because there were just multiple things going on at once. And then something happens during the vows. As my friend begins reading the lines from the vows and the the groom begins repeating, I so-and-so take you, so-and-so, to be my wife. The grandfather begins repeating the vows after the groom into his wife's ear. To have and to hold. To have and to hold. From this day forward. From this day forward. For better, for worse. For better, for worse. For richer, for poorer. For richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish. To love and to cherish until death do us part. Until death do us part. Everyone heard the groom and the grandfather. My friend said it was one of the more moving moments he's ever been a part of. So moving, in fact, one of the groomsmen. Uh, sat down with my friend after the wedding and prompted by what he saw in the grandfather asked about becoming a Christian. He'd come to support the couple, enjoy the party that was going to happen afterwards, but this profound declaration of Hesed named amid very obvious waves, it caught him. It caught him deeply. He would soon be baptized and, and actually join the church and would eventually one day serve as an elder in my friend's church. True Hesed, true faithfulness moves mountains. Because true hesed is an echo of the most fundamental promise God gives to humankind. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or as Paul famously summarizes this very point, nothing, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the ever-present love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Hesed, God declares. Hesed is my word, not because it is deserved or because my people have shown some signs of resiliency, a little bit of a sign of faithfulness. Hesed, because that's who I am. I am with you in life and in death. The cross is my clearest declaration of my allegiance to you. Which is to say, no matter how much the waves dislocate or disorient us, no matter how many times some of those waves are, are our own doing. We are never thrown beyond our home, who is God. Or perhaps this Reformation Sunday is a timely moment for us to remember that that first question and answer of of, um, that great Reformation era confession, the Heidelberg Catechism. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Ruth and Naomi are headed to Bethlehem. 
having heard there is bread. What I love about the story is far before they ever get to Bethlehem, Naomi is already being given the kind of nourishment that will not spoil or fade by way of Ruth's steadfast faithfulness. Where have you known that Hesed meal? these recent days. Who has named that gift to you and for you? And alongside whom might we offer a fresh serving of that meal today? Because every time we look upon one another in our friendships, our marriages, our vows as fellow members, our vows as officers of this church, or even and perhaps especially in the vows to people who are the enemy or the others or the ones with whom we do not associate, every time we look upon one another and declare, I am with you. Though the waves keep coming, though some of the waves are our fault, Though we know not nearly when or how these waves might subside, I am with you. Every time we declare that, we give tangible expression to God's gift of hesed, God's gift of faithfulness, God's ever-present love. In a world where the waves keep coming, the disorientation, the dislocation is acute, how needful, how good a gift to be offered home, the gift of home in the midst. Amen.